good morning. It is good to have you, those here in Bellingham, good to have you here on a nice rainy day. Those of you in Skagit, glad you're with us down there with Pastor Brian. Those at Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, glad that you're enjoying your sunny day. And those watching online and streaming, it's good to have you with us. Uh, you know, it's always uh, a great, great thing when we can come together as the body of Christ and uh, to worship together, to look into God's Word together. And regardless of what kind of week you've had, to be able to come together and lift up the name of Jesus, to remember the truths about who we are. And I, I mean, it's such a blessing for me, such a blessing today is, uh, here in Bellingham as we sang about the fact that, that the beautiful name of Jesus, the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus that we have based our life and our eternity on, and to be reminded that we're not slaves of fear, but that we are, we are loved by our Heavenly Father. And then to look into the timeless truths of God's Word, that, that is such a benefit that we get of coming together. And again, regardless of what kind of week that you've had, um, frankly, um, I've had a, um, a very difficult week, more so than normal. And I don't say that for, so for sympathy. It's just it's, it's been, uh, it's been a, a rough week. And... Um, so I got to the end of the week on Friday afternoon. I was like, okay, we made it through that week. And going into the weekend, I always look forward to the weekends. Love seeing you. Love being able to be here. Love to worship. Love to preach. And I was sitting uh, at a stoplight in my wife's car. Fortunately, I was by myself. And as I was thinking about how rough this week was being, but looking forward to the weekend, a semi-truck slammed into the back of me, uh, which pushed me into the car in front of me and that lady, and then pushed her car into the lady in front of her. And we're all okay. We're all okay. But I was, I was so thin emotionally, I just pulled out my Grant Fishbook and just started crying. Uh, and, uh, and so the paramedics came, everybody okay, are we okay? Yeah, what about him? I, I'm, yeah, so I'm crying, but I'm okay. I'm trying to explain, it's been a rough week. And police came, everybody okay? Yeah, yeah, what about him? Yeah, okay, yeah, he's crying. By the end of it all, these two ladies that got hit in front of me, are you okay? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been a rough week. And, um, and I love that we can come together and be reminded of who we are in Christ and the truth of his word that never changes and to be surrounded by brothers and sisters. And I wonder if you would just pray with me before we go any further today. Father, we are grateful uh, for the truth that doesn't change, for these truths that we have sung about today, the reason that your people have worshipped you through song for thousands of years. And we come to you knowing that your name, Jesus, is beautiful and wonderful and powerful. The name above all names. And that we are your children. And that we can come and know that you are good and faithful and your mercies are new again today. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the truth of your word brings life. And God, that in our difficulties, in our weakness, you are strong. And I pray um, that you would use me today as a weak and broken vessel. Um, and that your words would speak to us great life. I pray this in your name. Amen. So this is a, this is a uh, significant week. It is the week when we start summer. at least according to the calendar. And we pray that the weather will catch up with the calendar. It is also Father's Day weekend, and I want to say happy Father's Day to all of you who are dads. And yeah, that's, that's a good thing. 
if you are with us on Mother's Day, I said on Mother's Day I'm not going to preach a flowery Mother's Day sermon, and I didn't. And today's Father's Day, and I'm not preaching a Father's Day sermon. And you know what's kind of generally the case in church world on Mother's Day and Father's Day? On Mother's Day, there's these beautiful, beautiful sermons that basically say, Mom, you're the bomb. And on Father's Day, there's these sermons that say, Dad, you're bad. Step up. Be a man of God. Come on, get with it. So I'm avoiding both of those this year, and I'm not preaching on Father's Day necessarily today, but as we continue in our series, we are going to be talking about some fathers, and they will come into that. If you've been uh, familiar with church or the Bible or uh, sermons, you know that the whole concept of a father is nothing new. Jesus, in his most famous prayer, started off saying, Our Father. He taught us to address God as Father and in the Ten Commandments, kind of the foundation of everything, one of them is to honor your father and your mother. And if you were raised in church as a child, chances are you grew up singing a song that not only had hand motions, it had full body motions, a song about Father Father Abraham. Yeah, you remember that whole song deal that we sang? And maybe you wondered, why do we sing about Father Abraham, but none of the other patriarchal figures of the Old Testament? We never sing about Father Moses, Father Ezekiel, Father Isaiah, Father Elisha. Why is it about Abraham? Well, if you were with us last summer, we spent the entire summer focusing on the life of Abraham. And you may remember why he's referred to as a father. Because on the surface, for the majority of his life, he would be the least likely to be devoted, be voted father of the year, let alone father of the Bible. Not because he was such a bad guy. There was some of that too, but it's because he didn't have kids. There is a prerequisite for being a father. You got to have kids. So he's old and he doesn't have any kids and his body, according to scriptures, is as good as dead and his wife's womb is dead. That's not my words. That's Bible, quoting the Bible. But something happened in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 17 when God says to him, you no longer will be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. The name Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of many. Remember, we talked about this. Abram's likes calling him daddy. Abraham's calling him big daddy. And then when it comes to this big daddy, you begin to ask, who's your daddy? And everyone says, Abraham is. I mean, seriously, Israel. They'd say, Abraham's our dad. They would trace their, their bloodline, their lineage back through, through, I, uh, through um, Isaac and, and to, to Abraham and say, Abraham's our daddy. And all of the Arab nations would say the same. Abraham is our father through Ishmael. Not just, not the, genetic, not just the genetic bloodline, which, well, there was that too. But on a spiritual level, Judaism would say, Abraham is our father. Islam would say, Abraham is our father. Christianity, through Judaism, would say Abraham is our father. And not only is he like the founder of, of, of faith and, and the father of nations, but he's this man of, like this exemplar to be followed. In Hebrews 11, more time is given to Abraham than anyone else in chapter 11 when he's just talked about, he's commended for his faith. He was referred to as the friend of God. He was hand-selected and chosen by God. He was, he was given a covenant by God. He was given the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. We'll talk about that today. It was a very important thing for them. This was Abraham. He was the guy. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you'll often see in the Gospels, whenever the Jewish people kind of got back into the corner, their default answer was, Abraham's my dad. I mean, they come back to that again. We're descendants of Abraham. It's like that ends all arguments. Abraham is our father. And there was a time in John chapter 8 when they pulled that one out. 
pull out the trump card. Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, yeah, well, if Abraham was your father, you might act a little more like your dad. And he went into this whole thing. Gets to the point at the end where they say, are you saying you're greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus said, well, actually, Abraham really rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And um, yeah, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, they weren't real happy about any of that. But Abraham was, was this one. They always pointed back to him. He was their hero. He was the guy. He was their George Washington. He was, their, he, was every, he was the founder. He was the father. He was the friend of God. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I know you, you love that passage because it's a genealogy. But at the beginning of that, this whole list of names, it starts off and it says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then it does this leapfrog. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now what's interesting is those are thousand year jumps. And later the genealogy fills in the gap. But there's something about Jesus and David and Abraham. It's like they're these, these mountain peak figures from, from scripture. And what's amazing is what we will see today is that these same three, Jesus, David, and Abraham, will come into the discussion, and the primary focal point is Abraham, this father, father of nations, the founder of faith, this friend of God. So today, we're in Romans chapter 4. If you have your Bible, we're going to be digging into Romans chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, let me just mention one other uh, potential possibility for some of you. Some of you have been saying, man, I'm, I'm really sad that we're only spending 14 weeks in in Romans, because we have to just really skim through a bunch of stuff. We're going over a bunch. I wish we could go deeper. I wish we could spend more time with it. Let me tell you about a resource that is available to you. This fall, uh, Bible Study Fellowship, some of you have heard of BSF. Bible Study Fellowship is entering into a study on the book of Romans for the entire school year. Bible Study Fellowship, if you want information, go to bsfinternational.org. This is a, uh, a non-denominational, interdenominational. This isn't through Cornwall. This is just a Bible study um, group. And I'll tell you, if you want to be a part of this, you just need to know what you're getting into. There's homework every week. There's memory work every week. There's a lecture every week. There's discussion groups every week. You want to dig into Romans, they're going to spend the entire school year going through Romans. So for some of you, this is exactly what you've been looking for. And I will say this as your pastor and friend, you will probably need to say no to something else to say yes to this, just for the sake of your life and sanity, your schedule and your family. But this is a great option. Just wanted to let you be aware of that. One other thing is that I want to give you a quiz that I gave you last week. A quiz that it consists of four words, a quiz that I gave you the answer for every week start digging in your mind and going through your notes, coming up with it, whispering to your neighbors. It's a quiz that we will come back to again and again and again. I'll tell you this, Saturday night did not do real well on this quiz. Nine o'clock did okay. Let's see what 11 o'clock does. Here's the quiz. There's four words that talk about righteousness. What are those four words? Okay. So that was about the best. It's still only a B minus, but that was the best for the weekend. From God, by faith. Those four words, that there's a righteousness that is from God by faith. It found that in that, that verse that changed the course of Christianity, changed Martin Luther's life, changed John Wesley's life, John Calvin's life, changes our lives. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, in the gospel, a righteousness, a right standing from God is revealed. A righteousness by faith from first to last as it is written, and then he quotes Habakkuk, you know, the righteous will live by faith. And he spends the rest of the letter explaining that, defining that, illustrating that, expanding upon that, ex going through all this stuff. It's all this righteousness, this right standing that is from God, and it is by faith. 
And as we saw last week, he even says it almost verbatim a few chapters later. And even before that, he says this, but now a righteousness, a right standing from God, apart from law, and that was all last weekend, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now I want to take just a second here on this because we think law, we think the Ten Commandments, which that's part of it. Think prophets, we think Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, we think uh, Micah and those guys, that's part of it. When he says the law and the prophets, he's not talking about a specific list and a couple of guys. He's talking about Scripture. The law was the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That whole uh, body of of work, of, of literature, was referred to as the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The back half of what we call the Old Testament is the prophets. That middle section they would call the writings. But he says all of your Scripture... The law, the first, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and all of the prophets, they all testify to this righteousness, this, this, this righteousness that is, is from God, and it is by faith. Now, as I said, righteousness means a right standing before God. Another way you could look at it is this, is that righteousness is being good enough. It's good enough. And when you use those words, good enough, there's really two different ways you can use them. You can use them on a minimal level. Good enough is it's acceptable, all right? It's adequate. It's passing. It's just, it'll get you by. It's sufficient enough to get you by. It's like the minimum required. That can be good enough. It can also be talked about at a much higher level. Like if a young man wants to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage, he's never good enough, right? At that point, good enough is not just minimal standards. Does he have a pulse and does he have a car? You want something a little bit more than that, maybe, or at least... Anyway, you, it's a higher standard. When God says, I want a sacrifice that will suffice for my children that they can be redeemed, he says, it's not barely getting by. I want to get it good enough. And he gives the very best in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we talk about righteousness being good enough, it's being good enough for God, good enough for God. And here's a question for you, not a, qui- uh, not a trick question. When we're talking about being good enough for God, are we talking about minimum standards or the highest standard of all? the highest standard of all, which poses a problem for all of us. Because none of us are good enough for God. None of us are. That's what we talked about all of last week. This is why the gospel is offensive, because we think, well, no, no, I'm, I'm pretty good, and I've done this, and I don't do that, and, and all these things, and those people are worse, and, and, I, and I haven't done that in a long time, and I used to do that, and I don't do that anymore. Can, can I just state the obvious? It's true. You're not as bad as you could be, <laughs> you're right. No matter how, if you're an immoral adulterer that's a slanderer and a sleazeball and all these other things, you could even be worse if you tried. You're not as bad as you could be. That's true. But all of us are as bad off as we will ever be because our sin has separated, because we're not good enough for God. Take Isaiah. Isaiah, I mean, here's this, prophet, man of God, hand-selected by God, wrote part of the Bible. Isaiah comes into this brilliant beauty and glory of God's holiness and righteousness. And what is Isaiah, this saint of God, what is his response? Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm disintegrating. I'm coming apart at the seams is how that's literally translated. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips and I am of a people of unclean lips. None of us, he says, are good enough for God. And so Paul comes along and he says about this righteousness, this being good enough for God, this right standing with God that is from God and is by faith. And they're like, 
whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. This is kind of, this is kind of a paradigm shift. This is mind-blowing. This is new information. And he says, no, actually, it's not. The law and the prophets all testify this. This is the way it's always been. You just missed it. And what we find in Romans chapter 4 is that Paul just kind of enters in almost like a lawyer building this case against maybe some objections that some of his Jewish listeners especially are going to bring up. And he just builds his case and he, and he confronts the, the questions before they even ask. Now here's what I'm going to say. As we look at Romans chapter 4, um, I do think that he was speaking primarily to his Jewish audience at that point. The Gentiles, he says, you can listen in. It kind of applies to you. You come into us, but it's primarily for the Jewish people. As we go through this, some of you are going, how does that apply to me? As we see the general principle, the bottom line point applies to every single one of us. Maybe not through the Jewish mindset, culture, and religious uh, system, but it applies to every single one of us. So Paul puts together this case, and we're going to dig into that and look at it today. He says, okay, let's, uh, let's go back to our hero, who we always say, you know, this is, this is our guy, Abraham. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our, and he, he, our forefather, not doubting that, not denying that, our forefather, discovered in this matter? There was something that, that Abraham figured out, something that maybe we missed so let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to, to our father that we always say he's our guy. And they're so proud of Abraham. Again, he's a man of faith, committed for his faith. He's a friend of God. He's the founder of the faith, father of the nations, all that. If anyone could boast about their righteousness, it ought to be Abraham, right? I mean, he's the guy that got God to say, I will have a covenant with you. So he goes on, he says, okay, if, and this is part of his case he's building, if in fact... Abraham was justified, was declared right before God, was declared good enough for God by works. If Abraham did this, if there was some action, some obedience, some step, some law, something that he did that would cause him to be able to stand before God, completely good enough for God, then he had something to boast about. But he doesn't. Not before God. He's not. And now he takes them back to the law, to the book of Genesis. And he says, let's go back to the very beginning. He says this. What does the scripture say? It's taking them back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God. Let's stop there before we get to the second half of this. Abraham believed God. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Abraham believed in God. See, a lot of times we get in our American culture, Christianity, just believe in God. Do you know what it says in the book of James? The demons believe in God, and they shudder. So if that's what you're shooting for, you're right there. Got it. It's not just believing in God. He believes God. What does he believe? He believes God. Not just, yeah, yeah there is a God. I believe in God. I believe, yeah, 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 that's good enough. He believes God. Keep in mind, Abraham didn't grow up in a God-fearing Christian home. He didn't grow up going to the temple. It didn't exist. He didn't grow up going to the synagogue. They hadn't been invented yet. He didn't grow up with Bible stories. He was one of them. He didn't grow up going to Sunday school. He never went to Awana. He didn't go to VBS, BSF, CCD, or anything else with three initials. He didn't go to any of that stuff. And it wasn't because he kept the law. The law hasn't even been written. 
from Abraham's time, it's going to be 500 years before Moses even comes. It's not because he's like, I've been obedient to the law. I followed the rules. I went to church. There was none of that. There was just this word from God. And he says, I believe you. And it wasn't because he was such a stellar individual. While he was commended for his faith, if you'll recall from last summer, he lied about his wife on a couple of different occasions, sent her into the arms of two different men. He had an adulterous affair with her uh, handmaid, Hagar, has an illegitimate son named Ishmael, and then later sends him off to die in the desert. Not the most beautiful example of father of the year or godly man. What happened was, when he was 85 years old, and he was old, body as good as dead, and his wife, according to Scripture, was womb was dead, one night Abraham is called out of his tent, and God somehow says to him, look up in the stars. If you could count these stars, this is how numerous your offspring will be. Everything in life pointed against that possibility. Everything in biology said this will never be able to happen. This is impossible. But Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, the result is this. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as you're good enough for God. You've been given a righteousness. This word credited in Romans 4, it comes up again and again and again. Some of your versions might say, um, it might say counted or, or reckoned. It's an accounting term. It's a ledger term. We get it, credited. We understand that with money type of deal. Let me kind of try to paint a, a picture to help us grasp this. If you went to a bank and opened up like a super account, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm making this up, I think. So you open up this super account and it has your savings. You put all this money in it. But connected to that count, account is also a line of credit if you ever need it. And you have a debit card for easy access and you have a credit card that's connected with it as well as a checkbook. So it's got all, it's like the one-stop credit, uh, uh, I mean, it's the, the account. So as you get this thing going, it's just great. So you have your debit card and you start using it and you use up all the money in your account. Not a problem because you have a line of credit. So you start drawing on the line of credit until you've reached that limit. Now you have no money in your account. You've completely maxed out your line of credit, but you said, I still have my credit card. So you start, and some of you are looking at me like, is this a problem? (laughs) Yes. So you start using your credit card, and pretty soon it comes back saying, oh, it was denied. You say, okay, I still have checks. So you start writing checks, and you're sending checks and doing all this stuff. Now at this point, you have nothing in your account. You've completely, completely maxed out your line of credit. You've maxed out your credit card. Now you've written checks that that, that are going to bounce. Now there's debt, there's interest, there's penalties, there's fees, and you've got nothing to do. You can't fix this. You're a major financial mess. You need Dave Ramsey. At this point, someone, something, some business, some outside entity decides to direct deposit into your account, not because of anything you've done. They decide to direct deposit into your account to cover all of your debts, the line of credit, the credit card, the bouncing, the overdraft fees, the the interest, the penalties, cover all that and fill your account back up. That has now been credited to your account. If you switch the analogy now to our righteousness account, 
The truth that we saw last week is every one of us are maxed out, overdrawn, penalties, fees. We can never pay this back. But somehow there's this credit that is direct deposited into our righteousness account. And for Abraham, it was because he believed God that God credited his righteousness account with something that wasn't, that wasn't any a part of his doing. God gives this to him, puts it into his uh, account. As, as we see this, we begin to understand that this credited righteousness that it's talking about for Abraham and for us, the credited righteousness is declared. It's not something that we earned. It's not something that we did. It's not something that we deserve. It's just declared. It's, it's just deposited. The fancy theological word for this is imputed. I know it's kind of a weird word, but it's imputed. It means it's just, it's just, it has nothing to do with, with you. Man, I wish we had so, more time for this. Second Corinthians, such an incredible verse. It says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in him. We're this overdrawn, bankrupt sinner. He takes that on, and now in him, because he is credited to our account, we become the righteousness of God, not because of anything we've done. And so he's saying, listen, this is what happened with Abraham. He believed God, and God credited him this righteousness. Then he takes another stab at it from another angle. Chapter 4, verse 4. It says, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Most of us understand this. You get a job, you get a check. Our children may not understand that, but most of us understand this. You work, you agree to work, you agree to work for a certain salary. Hopefully it's fair compensation. Hopefully it's what the market will bear. You render whatever services, whatever duties need to be done. You do this for this employer, and in return, you get a check. This is not new information, I hope, for any of you. When someone works for an employer on this agreed-upon uh, kind of commitment that they've entered into, on payday, when they get a check, if they get a paper check, remember those, you get a check, no one goes around saying, I can't believe it. They paid me. I mean, I worked all week. They're so generous. They gave me money. Well, of course they did. You earned it. That was the agreement. No one's going around saying, oh, that was fantastic. No, this is their obligation. It's not a gift. They owed it to you. It is merit. You, you earned it. It's merited. It's their obligation to you. He says, we get that. And before we go to the next half of the next verse, I want to make sure you're really clear. What he's getting ready to say is not career advice. It's not financial advice. What it is, is he's taking an analogy from life and he's combining it with righteousness. Okay, this is not a career advice move. He says this, however, contrast, to the man who does not work but trusts God, that's not career advice. So he's saying, that's how I want to live. I don't want a job, I just want to trust God. Well, good. Let's see how that works for you. You know, the scripture also says, he who doesn't work shouldn't eat, but we'll get into that later. All right, however, to the man who does not work but trust God, who leans on God, who puts all of his confidence in God. This God, he says, you know what? It's not about what I've done. I'm going to trust what God has said, what God is doing. And what's amazing here is that he begins to give another description of this God of ours. You know, there have been times, we've done this in Refuge. I've done this in other settings where, where we're with 
Christian brothers and sisters and we're worshiping and, and whoever's leading will say, Let, let's just take some time and, and let's, just, let's just pray out loud and just fill in this sentence, you are the God who, and so people just do. You know, you're the God who is gracious. You're the God who is faithful. You're the God who's same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the God who's loving. You're the God who's forgiving. You're the God who's all wise. You're the God who's the way, the truth, and the life. You're the God who's sovereign. All these things. Paul says, let me tell you, maybe one of the most beautiful descriptors of God, the one who trusts in the God who justifies the wicked. No, no one ever says that in those prayer meetings. Oh, thank you, Jesus. God, you are the God who justifies the wicked. And I'm like going, what's his deal? The God who justifies the wicked. And we think, well, wait, wait, wait. Doesn't, doesn't, it's like God's on their side or something. Shouldn't he justify the righteous? Well, that would make sense. The only problem is if you're righteous, you don't need to be justified. And if God only justified the righteous, <laughs> no one would be justified. Remember what, what he said last week when we looked at when he's quoting the Psalms, there is none righteous, not even one, in case you think you're the exception. If God only justified righteous people, no one would be justified. There's only the wicked that can be justified. You know, here's a little, little, little rabbit trail for you. You know, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back parable, parable of the lost coin, lost sheep, and lost son. And in there it says, there is greater rejoicing over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Why would they say that? Because apart from Jesus, there aren't 99 righteous people. We're all sinners that need to repent. You know what? This is good news. This is good news for the adulterer, for the slander, for the cheater, for the gossip, for those who disobey their parents, for those who are, who are wicked and evil and murderers and bank robbers. You know who else this is good for? You! And me. Because this is us. To trust in God who justifies the wicked. And then he goes on and says, his faith. Whose faith? This wicked person. You and me. His faith is credited. There it is. It's, it's direct deposited in his account as good enough for God. He says, this is just put in. When you begin to understand this, what he's saying is, this righteousness we're talking about from God by faith. It's not remuneration. It's imputation. Remuneration is a compensation that is owed to you. That's your wages. This imputation is a gift. And in two weeks, when we look at Romans chapter 6, we'll see another very famous verse that talks about wages and gift. But he says at this point, this righteousness we're talking about, it's not a wage that you earn. It's a gift that you can receive. It's a gift that you can accept. And man, when you begin to understand that, when you receive it, you are truly blessed. You know that word blessed, it's such a church word. Blessed literally means how fortunate, how lucky, how happy. This is like the day. Now, I said in Matthew 1, uh, 1, 1 it talks about Jesus, David, and Abraham. Here, Abraham, uh, Paul switches to David. And you can imagine Tertius, who's, who's writing all this time, going, hold on, buddy. You know, so he's writing. Now he shifts gears, and he goes to David. David was like the king. You know, he was... Abraham was their father, but David was the king during the golden era of Israel. And he begins to quote a psalm that David wrote, specifically Psalm 32. And he says, blessed, happy, fortunate, lucky are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, part of that is that Hebrew prose deal with kind of the, the couplet repeating it. But there's also a, a distinct difference between this transgression and sin. 
Some of us remember hearing as kids or throughout life that sin is a missing the mark. It's falling short. It's I didn't measure up. And that's true. Let me talk about transgressions a little differently. Let's say that I'm walking through the forest, just minding my own business, having a good walk, and as I'm walking through the forest, I come up to a fence, and there on the other side of the fence is a farmer, and he's livid, and he's got a shotgun, and he says, you kids, get off my property, you're trespassing. Here's the question. Am I trespassing? That's a question. It's not a trick question. Am I trespassing? Yes, I am. I'm on his property. Am I guilty of trespassing? Was it malicious? No. I didn't mean to. I didn't know. I broke the rules. I broke the law, whatever, and I didn't even know I was doing it, but I was still guilty of trespassing. However, if I came from a different angle and I came up to a fence and there was a sign that said, no hunting, keep out, posted, no trespassing, all these kind of things, and I thought, and I go in, now, at that point, I have trans, gone across, transgressed a truth, a law, a demand, a command. I have chosen, willfully chosen, knowing that I'm not supposed to do that. Now I've chosen to do that. That's a transgression. Let me ask you this. No show of hands because I already know the answer. Have you ever known God's way, his word, and his will and willingly, on your own accord, of your own volition, decided, I'm going over here. The answer is yes. Okay. So with that explanation, in our simple minds, mine anyway, what do you think is worse, a trespass or a transgression? Man, you guys are thinking I'm trying to fool you. Of course it's a transgression. It's when you willingly go against what you know is right and you do it anyway. You do the wrong thing knowing that it's the wrong thing as opposed to it was an accident. I, I messed up. And he says, even when we know willingly go against God's law, his word, his way, his will, how blessed are we when that's forgiven and when our sins are covered and how happy and how fortunate is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. There's that word. There's that that kind of the debit side of the, of the credited word, and to say never. Listen, David knows what he's talking about. He wrote this psalm after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had conspired and had her husband Uriah the Hittite killed. He understood guilt. He understood transgression. He understood sin. He understood shame. He understood all of the punishment that was deserving to him. And he's saying how blessed it would be if that could be forgiven and forgotten and never brought up against me ever. And what he's writing, Jesus will make possible a thousand years later. It's an incredible thing. So now Paul comes back from David and he goes back to Abraham. Back to their, conf their, their confidence, this blessedness of, of having this righteousness. Verse 9, he says, Is this blessedness, this great fortune, only for the circumcised? I, I'm hesitating asking you guys questions today. Who were the circumcised? Good, good, good. Or also for the uncircumcised. Who were they? Gentiles. Good, okay. I got to just remember, stick with circumcision. Circumcision, you guys didn't know the answers to that one. Okay. He says, is this just for the Jews or is it not for the Gentiles as well? Remember last week, he says, there's no difference. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. 
We're not saying it. Scripture said it. Genesis 15 said it. So now he's building this case. You guys keep pointing to Abraham, his circumcision, the covenant, all of that. Circumcision was so important to them because it was a physical mark that they had entered into a relationship with the heavenly father, with Yahweh, that no other nation had. They were his chosen people. They would be blessed to be a blessing to the whole world. That he would be their God and they would be his people. This was very important. This was their identity, their worth, their value, who they were. It was all wrapped up in this circumcision. And he says, so we've been talking about Abraham who was you know, declared righteous by faith. He kind of brings up this whole thing. So did that happen B.C. or A.S.? Was that before circumcision or after surgery? And when, 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 did that, when did he get declared righteous? So he answers his own question. Uh, yeah. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now all of a sudden they're going, okay, wait a second. So you're saying Abraham was declared righteous while he was still an uncircumcised Gentile. Yes. Circumcision wasn't the key that opened up a right relationship with God. It wasn't the gateway into being good enough for God. The credited righteousness came in Genesis 15. Circumcision was introduced in Genesis 17, 14 years later. So Paul's just building this case for them. You have all your confidence in Abraham and circumcision. Do you realize that he was credited with righteousness while he was still an uncircumcised Gentile. So he just kind of builds his case and says, so if, then, goes on, so then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness, good enough for God, might be direct deposited to them, even the Gentiles, even if they're not Jewish. See, circumcision was an, it was an outward sign of an inner reality. It was an outward fleshly reminder of a spiritual reality, a condition that had already been happened. I, I think the best, maybe best way we can kind of try to understand this has to do with the wedding ring. I got married 17 and a half years ago. I wear this wedding ring. If I take this wedding ring off, am I still married? Yes, okay, we're doing okay on questions so far. If I, if I take this ring off and give it to this gentleman, is he now married to my wife? No, 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 no. That's not how it works. This ring is a reminder of a covenant that I entered into 17 and a half years ago. All right, so let's try it this way. Let's say Pastor Kip is doing a wedding. Young couple, they're deeply in love. They've got nothing but love. They're there with their friends and their families. They're living on love, buying on time. Without somebody, nothing ain't worth a dime. They've got no money. They barely scraped enough money to even buy a, a marriage license, so Kip agrees to do this, this wedding. So they get married, but they don't have rings because they can't afford them. Are they still married? Good. So 14 years later, life circumstances have changed. They actually got a job. They, they have some money. And they look at each other one day and say, you know what? We've been married for 14 years. We ought to get rings. And one of the spouses says, I've got a better idea. Let's tattoo rings on so it will be a permanent reminder of the covenant that we entered into 14 years ago. It will always be on our flesh as a reminder of something. Now, have they been married for 14 years? Yes, they have. And that's what he's saying. 
He had been righteous, declared righteous for 14 years before this fleshly sign even came along. So it wasn't the circumcision that was so important. It was the, the righteousness that came from God. Now, skip down verse 16. Therefore, keep filling this case. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may two things. It can be by grace and it can be guaranteed. Grace, we talked about this last week, and guaranteed. You don't have to question it. It comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. All right. Then it talks about this promise that he was given, that he would have a son, that his descendants would be as many as the stars, and he's old, and there's wombs dead, and the whole thing. And, and he continues on. Verse 21, verse 20 says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Question for you. If there was some promise that was given to you, and by all earthly measures it looked to be absolutely impossible, not looked to be, it was by earthly standards absolutely impossible, and it had been promised years and years and years, do you think you would ever waver in your faith? Yeah. I do. You do. When the prayer's not answered, when you keep holding on, it, and you start wondering, you start questioning, you start doubting, you start wondering, does God care? Is he, is he there? Does, does he hear my prayers? We do this all the time. And I see when people come into difficult situations and circumstances and seasons of life, and their faith just crumbles, and they just throw their hands up, and they give up on God. The foundation was so thin. Not Abraham. Abraham, it strengthened him. He was strengthened in his faith. And not only that, look at his response. He gave glory to God. He continues to worship God even though there's no, no way this is ever going to happen by earthly standards, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. So Paul just lays this all out. He says, listen, David predicted that Jesus, didn't use the words, but that, that there would be this way that even our transgressions could be, could be forgiven and never counted against us. Abraham understood this righteousness that was credited to him. And he says, okay, Let's stop with the law and the prophets. Let's stop with the Old Testament. Let's get real personal. And he says this. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. We, we get it for Abraham. He's the man commended for his faith. He's the father of nations. He, he's the friend of God. Of course, he entered it. He's the covenant guy. But they weren't just for Abraham, but also for us to whom God will credit. He'll, he'll direct deposit this good enough for God, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He's just saying, listen, this isn't either or. What are you going to put your confidence in? What are you going to trust in? I mean, is it, is it, you know, for the Jewish people, is it circumcision? Is it the law that you can never, you can never keep? You'll always be frustrated and you'll always be wondering, is that what you're going to do? Or is it this promise of God, a righteousness from God that is by faith, give it to you because of his grace and it's guaranteed. Which one? Which one are you going to do? Now you say, well, okay, that's all great for the Jewish audience. Let's bring it down to us. Because while we might not be pointing saying, Abraham's our father and I'm circumcised, I don't need to know about that. But we do put our confidence and our trust in a lot of things sometimes. 
And they're not necessarily bad things. Well, I was baptized. Hey, so was I. And, and, and if you haven't been, I think you ought to be. Well, I was dedicated as a child. Okay, okay wonderful. Well, I took my first communion, and, and it was a wonderful deal. And, and I was confirmed. I made my profession of faith. You know, I, I graduated from this discipleship school. All those things. They're all great. But that's not what justifies you. What justifies you is a righteousness that comes from God. And because of that, we're baptized. You know, the, the dedication is hoping that someday you will. The communion is remembering the sacrifice that Jesus has done for you. The confidence is not in that. The confidence is in the promise, and the grace, and the guarantee. It's a trust transfer from what I can do, from what I've done, from what's happened to me, transferring it to the promise of God, the righteousness that is from God, by faith, with his grace that is guaranteed. And then he circles it around to Jesus one final time in verse 25. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, both of them. At the crucifixion, the death, there was a subtraction. Our sin, our guilt, it's taken from us. It's put to Jesus. Jesus becomes that. The wrath of God is satisfied. Justice is uncompromised. And our account is, goes to a zero balance. But the resurrection of Jesus imputes not only just a canceling of the debt, but the righteousness of Christ and fills our righteousness account full to overflowing. It's the death and the resurrection died for our sins, raised for our justification. You know who would do this? A good, good father who would love us enough that he would send his only son. That we have. Listen, if you've never made that transfer of trust, I mean, why not today? Why not say, you know what, I, I'm done with trusting me or what I've done or all these things. I want to trust in what Jesus has done and what God has said in his promise. And to do that, when you, when you do that, you become a, follow, a child of Abraham, a follower of Jesus, a son or daughter of the Most High. That's Romans 4. So here's how we're going to end. I'm going to invite you to stand. And I want us to read this verse together out loud. And then I want us to worship the one who made all of this possible. Would you read this with me out loud? He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Only a good, good father would do that for us.